Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Dr. Jeff Szymanski is the Executive Director of the International OCD Foundation, and he is also on the clinical staffs at McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Before we go further, I want to give you the organization's website because it is such a rich source of information, but listen carefully to the spelling of the website. It's not quite what one would expect. It's www.oc. Foundation. OC Foundation is one word, www.ocfoundation.org. Dr. Szymanski, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. One of the more fascinating and at the same time confusing clinical issues is the large number of symptom clusters that seem to be a part of the OCD spectrum. What is OCD and why does it show up in so many ways? With OCD, you have obsessive thoughts that are intrusive, automatic, and unwanted. Along with these thoughts comes intense anxiety. Following the anxiety and the intrusive thoughts, you have people attempting to get rid of the anxiety and get rid of the thoughts by engaging in compulsive behavior. So compulsive behaviors with the intention of reducing the anxiety. Now, when the thoughts, the anxiety and the compulsive behavior becomes very time-consuming and interferes with a person's ability to do their day-to-day kind of taking care of themselves and also interferes with things like social functioning, occupational functioning, then we call it obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, obsessiveness is a personality trait. So these are people that are thinkers, they're worriers. That's not a disorder. Okay. There are people that engage in compulsive, repetitive ordering kind of behavior, if it's not time-consuming, it's not a disorder, it's a personality trait. So that's part of where people get mixed up. In terms of the subtypes, as you're calling them, symptom clusters, so there are themes that go through the obsessions and there are themes that go through the compulsive behavior, but it's hard to really subtype. You can call some people the contamination folks and the checkers and et cetera, but people can check for all kinds of reasons. People can have all kinds of fears associated with contamination. So it's more kind of looking at the themes within the obsessions and looking at the themes within the compulsive behavior. In obsessions, you see issues around fear of oneself being in danger in some way through disease or germs, kind of the traditional OCD. There is fear of harm. That's where you get all the checking in terms of the compulsive behavior. But you also get themes of unwanted sexual thoughts and images, unwanted violent thoughts and images, unwanted blasphemy. Also with OCD, you get a lot of obsessions around wanting things to look a certain way, feel a certain way, a lot of perfectionism. In terms of the compulsive behaviors, the themes are typically the washing, checking, repeating. Less thought of as compulsive behavior is repeatedly asking for reassurance from other people. And there's a lot of internal compulsive behavior that happens. So traditionally, people had what were called pure obsessionals. That is no longer something that we talk about necessarily in OCD. So you have intrusive automatic thoughts that cause anxiety, and then you have deliberate purposeful thoughts that you engage in to try to reduce the anxiety. We call those mental compulsions, and those could be things like mental reviewing, mental checking, using thoughts to undo thoughts or neutralize thoughts. So when you say obsessions or compulsions within OCD, we actually don't say either or. They always come hand in hand. Interesting. Is it more common in men or women? Do we have any gender preference in its existence? In childhood, we see OCD happens more to boys than girls. But by the time you hit adolescence and adulthood, it's equally split. And are there any known cultural differences? Is it as common in the American culture as in the European culture? There are big overlaps there or amongst the Asians or Latin Americans. Do we have any data about that? When you look at 
epidemiological studies in other countries, OCD hits the same incidence in pretty much every culture except in China. And in fact, there's some theories about why that is, whether it's underreporting or in fact, China uses a different set of diagnostic criteria. They don't use the DSM or the ICD. They use, there's a China set of criteria. So that might be a, an artifact of how they, they assess for it. And that may change with time, obviously. Then. Correct. Okay. Is there any biological deficit that seems to be the, the basis of OCD? By this, I mean, is it more biological or is it more psychological or environmental? Again, where does it come from? Do we have a sense? So we think as with Many of the psychological disorders, it is multiply determined. There is increasing evidence that this is a genetic disorder, so it is being passed down through families. There's a genetics collaborative group that's part of our organization that are sharing DNA samples, and they are finding that there's something going on within families where it's getting passed down. And in fact, if you have a kid who develops OCD, there's probably more of a genetic contribution. But as with all of these conversations, it's never just genes alone. It can be about neurobiology. So we also know through neuro imaging studies, if you take pictures of people's brains that have OCD and you compare them to people that don't have OCD, you actually see some changes. There is some disruption in what's going on in the emotional processing centers in the brains of people with OCD. Now, you can't use that diagnostically. In other words, you can't take a picture of one brain and compare it to just another brain. This is collapsed across groups. So we also know that there's a learning factor. So for example, in learning theory, what we understand is that if you engage in a behavior and the outcome of that behavior is that you get something that you want, you're more likely to engage in that behavior again. So if you are feeling anxious and you engage in compulsive behavior and it temporarily relieves the anxiety, you're going to engage in compulsive behavior more going forward. So there's a genetic contribution, there's a neurobiological contribution, and, and then there's this behavioral learning contribution. In just a moment, I want to get to talking about OCD in kids, but as you were speaking, what comes to mind is that OCD appears to be so common in conjunction with other diagnoses. It seems like there's such a large overlap. Where are the diagnostic overlaps? So there is a group of disorders called OC spectrum disorders, and the reason they're called that is because they tend to co-occur with OCD quite a bit, and there's a lot of overlapping features. And so an example of this is tics or Tourette's syndrome, and what you see with tics is this kind of repeated motoric behavior that happens over and over again, and the differentiating factor between the two of them. So in compulsive behavior, you see repeating behavior, but with a tick, it's more of kind of a sensory discomfort. In OCD, there's usually a, an obsession, a thought that goes along with why they're doing that repeated behavior. So again, there's some overlap, but some differentiation. Another disorder that co-occurs at, at a high rate is body dysmorphic disorder. So this is a kind of excessive preoccupation with some perceived defect. The person feels like their skin isn't clear enough or their nose is too big or they're preoccupied with their hairline. Everyone's preoccupied with their appearance to a degree. This is, again, an impairment. So this is excessive preoccupation. Trichotillomania or compulsive hair pulling and compulsive skin picking also co-occur quite a bit with OCD. And again, there are differentiating factors with trichotillomania. It's primarily just hair pulling. You don't see hair pulling in people with OCD. And then just in general, impulse control disorders. So it's I like doing educational things like this because people still talk about compulsive shopping and compulsive gambling, compulsive sexual behavior. Those are all impulse control problems. Compulsive behavior is done with the intention of reducing anxiety. Impulsive behavior is done with the intention of increasing excitement, increasing kind of a high and a rush. The treatment actually is different, so it's important that we call those impulse control disorders. 
And what's interesting as you go through this is there's this repeated notion of people, and I'm going to use the term in a lay manner, not in a scientific manner, they become obsessed with things. And so it looks like an OCD syndrome, but it's really not an OCD disorder. Correct. People say, I'm obsessed with my breakup with my partner. I'm obsessed with losing my job. I'm obsessed with, and they are using that in a very lay language. And actually, even the use of that obsessing is inaccurate because by definition, an obsession is something that is intrusive and automatic. And it's very important to differentiate that because if you try and respond to an obsession with thought suppression, in other words, I'm thinking about this, I don't want to think about this. In fact, what you're doing is creating more power and frequency to that thought. And this is what we're finding out psychologically. So we have to differentiate internally what's going on for people Something that is an obsession is something that your mind puts out there. It's intrusive and it's automatic. When you start to think about it, you're ruminating. You're engaging in a mental compulsion, mental reviewing. That isn't obsessing. But again, it's you don't need to make that fine distinction for lay people. But when you're treating someone with OCD, you need to. And with other professionals, you need to make that distinction. And by extension, since so many people go to internists and non-psychiatrists for diagnosis, and many of these non-psychiatrists, they're good people. I'm not putting them down by any stretch of the imagination. But there's a subtlety here that you're talking about in terms of the diagnosis that is very critical in terms of coming up with the right treatment. Absolutely, because the diagnosis drives the treatment. And as I was saying, the treatment for tics and for Tourette's and for trichotillomania and for impulse control disorder is very different than that for OCD. So you have to know what the diagnosis is. And I think what also is confusing sometimes, at least from the point of view of medications, is that sometimes the same medication is used in so many disorders that it almost looks, and it's a dangerous almost looking, but it almost looks as if one can shotgun with medications like the Prozac type drugs. One's got to be very careful. Absolutely. Now, and there's a good news and a bad news about that. And so, for example, with, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so whenever I say these things, I always say, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but one of the first-line treatments for OCD is an SSRI-based drug like Prozac. And so it's good to get that in the mix because you might hit someone with mild or moderate OCD, and that's going to help a lot of people really very quickly. Some people don't respond to the SSRIs, though. And, and again, they're even labeled as antidepressants, not as anti-anxiety medication. So absolutely, it creates a kind of confusion in terms of the diagnosis. And I do want to point out that on your website is an excellent table listing all these things with some of the differentials. And as yes. you read them, look at them, and take this table, if you need to, to your doctor. And, exactly. dis- and discuss it, and let's get the best treatment possible. Before we go off on another tangent, I-, I need to ask you a little bit about the notion of autism. That is so commonly put into the OCD spectrum. Yes. Is it a place where we should keep it? No, there are, again, you, what you see are some of these overlapping features. You see deficits in social functioning for some people with OCD when it gets very severe. They might have some social anxiety. We know that the autism spectrum, that that's one of the defining features. You also see what they call stereotypy in autism spectrum disorders where they're repeating a behavior. But again, if you talk with someone with an autistic spectrum disorder, what they'll say is that I'm doing that to kind of just in a general way feel better. If you see repeated behavior in a person with OCD, they're saying I'm doing this in response to a specific thought or image. I'm trying to make that thought or image go away. I'm trying to reduce my anxiety associated with the thought or image. So the repeated compulsive behavior is directly connected to an obsession. You also see with people with autistic spectrum disorders, this preoccupation with some narrow focus, some interest that they have. 
but they get a lot of gratification out of following up on that interest. If you see someone with OCD who's preoccupied, they're preoccupied in a way that's driven out of fear, that's driven out of disappointment, that's driven out of I don't want to disappoint people or come across in the wrong way. It's very perfectionistic. The other differentiating factor with autism is that some of the unwanted content that people experience in their thought process and OCD, they try and get away from. People with Asperger's and, and autism don't try and get away from their mental content necessarily. It's an interesting point. It's a diagnostic point, actually. Yes. One of our real concerns is OCD in kids, and I'm talking about youngsters and teenagers. How common is it? What does it behaviorally look like? What should parents and teachers be on the lookout for if they suspect it? What are your thoughts, please? So we estimate there's somewhere between about 500,000 on a conservative end to a million kids currently struggling with OCD in this country. And another way to think about that is that four to five kids in an average-sized elementary school might have OCD. Typically, you see an onset in puberty or in the late teens. That's actually just, just across the spectrum. That's when we see the onset of OCD. It can occur in kids as young as three. That's not terribly common, but but again, we do see this in, in kids quite young. As I mentioned before, boys tend to have it more than girls, but this equals out in adolescence. It's one of the programs that we are, it's kind of one of our initiatives for next year is to get back into school systems and to help teachers begin to recognize what the symptoms of OCD are and helping parents do the same because it goes back to the diagnostic question. If a teacher is seeing a kid repeat something over and over again, not listen to a redirection, spending a lot of time in the bathroom, they're going to think they're being defiant and it's a behavior problem when in fact the kid's struggling with OCD. So the things that we tell parents and teachers to look out for, any kind of significant change in their behavior just in general, a kind of withdrawal or secretiveness and lots of unexplained kind of private time in the bathroom, in their bedroom, having a really hard time with transitions, getting to places, getting from one place to another, for parents to check and see what sleep problems might be going on, for teachers looking at kids being very perfectionistic, trying to get everything just right, lots of erasures, lots of late homework, but it isn't that they're not doing it, it's that they're doing it over and over again. Sometimes we hear of something known as refractory OCD, and sometimes you hear of actual neurosurgical interventions that are being researched. I know that the neurosurgeries aren't really as, well, they're not as successful as we would like it to be, and I'm glad they're doing the research. Is there any sense of where we're going with non-medical interventions with some of the neurosurgical interventions? Is it promising or is that a long time in coming yet? It is promising, but there's a stepwise approach. So the first thing that you do if you recognize that you have OCD is that you, you try the first line treatments. That means you try either exposure and response prevention therapy or you try medication and typically people start with the SSRIs. If either one of those aren't working, try them in combination. If that isn't working, then you want to what we call step up your level of care. So there are other programs in the country that do more intensive ERP. Sometimes it's, it's kind of a dosage issue. Sometimes you start a medication that's supposed to be helpful for your disorder, but it isn't at a high enough dose. And it's the same issue with exposure and response prevention therapy. So there are different programs, and they're listed on our website, that are more intensive levels of care, all the way up to residential care, where they live at a hospital for up to three months, and they get care around the clock, and they're doing exposure response prevention every day in addition to medication. Now, if that isn't working, there are several medication augmentation strategies 
what they're beginning to find is that OCD was originally uh, connected to serotonin, one of the brain's neurotransmitters, that there was some problem in that neurochemical. Now they're beginning to think for some people it might be the serotonin system, for others it might be in addition to that the dopamine system. And so if an SSRI doesn't work out, you might want to try a dopamine agent. Now they're finding in this most recent research that there's another chemical in your brain called glutamate, and this might be operating at too high a level. So OCD can be driven by disruption in any three of these. So if an SSRI doesn't work out, talk with your psychiatrist about, can we do a dopamine agent? Can we try a glutamate agent? Now, if none of those things are working, if the alternative medications aren't working, the increase in level of care, then you try the neurosurgeries. And what we're finding is that people who haven't responded to any of these other treatments If you try one of these neurosurgery options, we get about 50% of people having at least some response. So to me, that's enough information to say as a last resort, we're going to do something pretty intense, but we have a 50% response rate when you guys have had no response to anything prior. It's interesting also because I can remember when I was in training that OCD was sometimes referred to as the silent epidemic. We really didn't have a lot of skills and a lot of interventions. Things have really improved so dramatically that with hard work and and going with someone who really knows how to treat OCD is, is really critical. We need to discuss, however, something known as the pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with streptococcus. It's otherwise known as PANDAS. And I must say, that the pandas, the name invokes a teddy bear image. Yes. And as we go and talk about this, if the information that we're going to talk about applies to your child, go talk to your doctor about this. We can't recommend treatments, but we can recommend that you discuss it with your doctor. Okay, sir, walk us through this, if you would. So what people were starting to recognize is that there was what parents were describing as an overnight transformation in their kid. What you typically see in OCD is a gradual onset. What some parents were coming into doctor's offices saying, my kid changed overnight. And what they started to see is that these changes that look an awful lot like OCD symptoms were co-occurring with the kid being sick. Now, we also know that in general, OCD symptoms tend to get worse when anyone's sick that has OCD. But with these kids, it seemed to go for many of them, hand-in-hand with when they got a strep infection, they had a lot of OCD behavior, a lot of obsessions, a lot of compulsive behavior. And so they're beginning to think that there might be some subtype of OCD for some subset of kids that when you see this kind of overnight transformation of very severe OCD and that when they physically are feeling better, the OCD almost seems to remit. And then when they get sick again, the OCD comes back with a vengeance. With that kind of profile, you you definitely want to have mental health care on kind of the, the psychological end. And you also want to get a physician involved because the treatments tend to go hand in hand. On average, if you just have a kid with pandas just doing ERP, you may not be giving them as many resources as they might need. So this is something that at least people need to know about and to keep on, as we call it in medicine, the list of diagnostic possibilities. Absolutely. And there's a lot more research going on about this now because people are very interested in it. And if we can equip these kids with more and more resources, again, if there's a way of treating the physical end of this that treats some of the OCD, then we should be doing that. And along with that, and people have heard us discuss this thousands of times, the earlier the intervention, the better. Correct. And that comes from having good information. Let me give your website address again, and I think we'll refer to it as OC Foundation, not OCD Foundation, OC (laughs) Foundation. It's www.ocfoundation, that's one word, .org. 
Dr. Jeff Szymanski is the executive director of the International OCD Foundation, and we've been talking about a large number of issues, very pertinent and very promising about where we're going with the treatment of this condition, both in adults and in children. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. 